When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm here with Andy Green from Rolling Stone. Hey, Andy. Hi there, Brian. And we're going to be joined by the king of the underground garage, guitarist for the E Street Band, star of The Sopranos and Lilyhammer, and one of rock's most underrated songwriters, and one of my own favorite songwriters, Steve Van Zandt. He just released his first album in many years, Soul Fire. Welcome, Steve. Wow, thank you. So, just did a story on you and Rolling Stone, and I got to uh, talk to Sasa Johnny about you a little bit. And he said that Steve is so focused on whatever he's working on, and that's what makes him great, and it can also wear you out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's why I try and do like five things at the same time. Uh-huh. So, you know, you disperse the energy because <laughs> he's right when I do one thing I, I overdo it you know you know people always say what well, you know why are you doing all these things at the same time I'm like I have to or else you know I just overdo it you know I, I overwhelm whatever I'm into you know so you know I've just got through through the years I mean I've been doing it so long now literally three four five things at the same time that that uh, it's become a nice balance, you know, for the energy. You know, it just kind of goes to the right place at 100%, stays at 100% rather than 120, <laughs> you know. Southside also said that both you and Bruce are, quote, rehearsing fools, whereas Southside said you guys like to rehearse for four hours. Southside doesn't want to rehearse for one minute, he said. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, Bruce is a little worse than me, I, I must say, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know. But now, with my with my stuff, uh, having, not, having not done it for so so many years, I, I realize that it, it does require some time and attention, and uh, it's a bit more sophisticated than I remembered it being. And, and uh, through the years, it's sort of it's taken on a, a more sophisticated sort of the elements of it now are, are, are feel feel new and fresh. Um, now you have so much distance from the roots itself, you know, and you realize that where this came from was an, another another era entirely where, you know, you had the best musicians in the world doing those Motown records or, or whatever it was, right? So I'm kind of come full circle back to that now. I started off with rock musicians. Yeah. And I, I can't use rock musicians anymore. Huh. I can hear, I can hear where the tempo slows down in the middle of a drum fill, you know, now, you know? I need, I need, you know, especially when you have 15 people, you know, I have background vocals interwoven with string lines and horn lines, and everything has its place, you know. There's not a lot of room for um, for being a bit, you know, sloppy like we always were in the rock world, you know. So it's a different it's a different sensibility, really, and, and I realize that. Just having going back to it now, I, I you know, it's, it's when I finally, it's finally dawned on me, you know. You don't read or write music, do you? No. No, I, I need somebody there to write the notes down. 
and a, a menu ensis, I guess, is what we call that. That is the I learned from Elvis Costello. That's the, that the right yeah, word. Yeah, he, he, he said he used Elvis that. would come up with that yeah, word. You know what I mean? Amanuensis. <laughs> Apparently, he used the word amanuensis to Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan goes amanuensis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had the same reaction. Uh, I don't know, but I, you know, you call it a I don't know translator. You call it an orchestrator or whatever. But uh, I need somebody doing the writing down the notes. But you can keep all that in your head, though. Even if you can't read and write, you you know what the horn should be doing, what the strings should be doing. That's all kind of in your head. Well, with horns, you have to be ahead of time, usually, you know. But I, I like I like to go into the studio and, and I'll make things up right on the spot, you know, which sometimes delays things and having because then you have to write them down. But uh, I like I like to I like to do things pretty spontaneously um, when it comes to the arrangement of a song. I like to hear what who's there, who are the musicians, you know, wh- who are the musicians, what's going on at that moment. But uh, yeah, I can usually figure out at this point. I I, I kind of hear what what the horn parts will be, what the string parts will be, what the background vocals will be. Um, I kind of took it to another level last year with the Darlene Love album, which uh, I think was a was a high point for me in terms of my arranging and produ- producing and uh, it just took me to some other place you know, because of her greatness. I was just trying to keep up with her you know what I mean so it raises your game you know right it was like you know we were I, thinking Phil Spector you were thinking you know <laughs> well yeah. you know I mean you got Phil and Jack Nietzsche and you know you know the, you know, and, and, and the Wrecking Crew you know that, yeah. that, that's, that's all you're comparing yourself with right <laughs> you know nothing's nothing nothing too too much pressure there right you know and you know, so it was, yeah, it was it was a nice it was a nice challenge, and and I felt uh, it really it, it it raises your game, you know, and so I think I I stayed in that mode for this for this record as well. You know. What have you learned about great song arranging that you didn't know, you know, twenty thirty years ago? Like, geez, you know, um, I don't know. I, I was pretty lucky. Um, I got into it very early. I mean, I got strings on the very first song. You know, I, I put strings on I Don't Want to Go Home, Absolutely, you know, yeah. which was a nutty thing to do. And the second record I ever produced was the Ronnie Spector uh, Say Goodbye to Hollywood, which was a big string part, you know. So I, I just kind of heard it right away. I mean, I guess just from, you know, you absorb these things, you know, uh, mostly Motown, I would say. But also... Um, some of the Spectre stuff. Some of the, well, well, really, it starts with Lieber and Stoller, really. I mean, I think they were the beginning of all the songwriter, arranger, producer guys. You know, yeah. they, they were the guys for me. Um, they were the first one to introduce strings. Uh, I think it was on There Goes My Baby, uh, the Drifters record, Benny King sang. Um, so then you start with Lieber and Stoller, and then, and then you go into some of the Phil Spector stuff. But then... You know, the Four Seasons records were always a major uh, source of uh, inspiration for me, uh, production-wise, and, and, and Motown. Mm. The Four Seasons and the Motown records were, were those big, you know, uh, horns, strings, background vocals, the whole, you know, the whole thing. One question that I see people asking you kind of over and over again in, in the course of talking about this album is, man, like, how did you feel comfortable as a songwriter when you have Springsteen right next to you blasting out all of these songs? Like, it doesn't seem like that's the way you thought at all. It's hard to imagine, I know, but we grew up together, and you know. And um, I ended up, once, I joined, once, once we joined together in, uh, you know, in the mid-'70s, uh, I was you know, helping arrange all those songs, you know, so... so very very intimately in, engaged in, in that stuff he wasn't he has become quite a great arranger himself through the years but he wasn't really back then you know mm. and, and uh, he would have ideas and, and he had he didn't hear things in a normal way 
which you know at first when we were kids you know in our in our in our young bands was a problem because you were measured by how accurate your 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 band was you know to the records on the radio right you know and he never quite, you know, he'd have the wrong chords, you know, he'd have the wrong, you know, <laughs> you know he, he was always like a little bit off, which was was bad as a kid, but then turned out to be a very positive thing, of course, because it helps you be much more original, which he, which he became. But then, but then, so so I was sort of a more conventional, you know. I, I think I think in more conventional terms for the most part, than when it comes to arranging and configuration of a song, structure of a song, you know. Uh, I, I I tend to know what what is the best, most effective way of 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 producing something, you know. That's just the way I think. So he was a bit less conventional, and I was a bit more. So I think the the two of us together, you know. Uh, helped uh, those records become, you know, what they were. So the other question, which I never can answer, is why didn't we write more together? Uh, I, I have no answer for that. I wish we did. You know, I wish we had done more together. We were living together, for Christ's sake. You know, yeah, literally, you know. So, I mean, it's like, you know, so we, we should have done more together. I when were you we living more. together? Uh, we were in the same apartment in the... Uh, I never, I never, I am very bad with time. It's somewhere in 73, I think. Uh, so did you go straight from being roommates with Southside to being roommates with Bruce? Was yeah. It like, <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? And I survived. Uh, Who was like a better roommate, Southside or Bruce? Well, uh, we weren't home much, you know, but uh, we, <laughs> Bruce did a very funny uh, speech about this one. Some place was honoring me about something, and he he did a speech about we were the odd couple. And of course, his whole speech was one big lie, pretending, you know, he was the Jack Lemon and I was the Walter Matha. You know, I was the sloppy one. He was, which it wasn't the it wasn't the case. You know, he's a complete slob, and and, and you know, it was one big mess. But anyway, we we we, but we didn't, you know, we didn't really. Um, I don't. I don't really. I, you know, thinking about we we both we always were kind of doing the same thing. Mm. We were always kind of self-contained, you know, which is a drag. You know, I mean, I like collaborating actually. You know, when you when you can, but uh, we we both were just learned to be. You know, we were lead singers, lead guitarists, band leaders, songwriters in our own. You know, in our own bands and you know independently. And then I felt I could contribute something considerable if I joined up with him, which people were very surprised when I joined up with him. You know, we were kind of equal, yeah, equally big, you know, in our local little area. So I and I said, no, he's got something special going on here that I think I want to, you know, I want to help. You know, I could I could help, I could somehow compliment. And uh, yeah, anyway, so so um, it, it was a challenge when you when you help arrange. A hundred songs, which you know I did, you know, between just darkness and the river, hmm. as a, over a hundred songs. Um, what is a challenge is making sure when you start writing songs again that you're not stealing something or, or you know borrowing That's something point, too, yeah. too, too too much. Now, being intimately involved with it, it helped because I knew. You know, once in a while, I'd be like, eh, "It's a little too close." You know, there's something. You know, let me move away from that. You know. So I, I managed to, you know, do. I mean, I've only written about a hundred songs myself, which is not a lot, mm. you know. But but um, I've always been careful to try and stay, you know, make sure make sure I wasn't uh, 
you know, unintentionally stealing something from him, you know, because he, he's just so prolific. I mean, you know, he's literally, I don't know how many songs he's written, but it's got to be two or three hundred, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and they're all, and they're all, and they're all great. You know what I mean? It's like, he, you know, there's no filler, you know, with him, you know, so you have to be a little bit careful, a little bit conscious of it, but I'm, I'm but I'm that way about everything, you know, you have to be just as, just as conscious about, you know, stealing something from, you know, Lennon and McCartney or Jagger and Richards or whoever it is, you know. It, although you were you were the lead vocalist in the Shadows, your high school band, and then and then the other bands were you all were you always the frontman? That wasn't my band. Yeah, I was oh. the lead singer. In some, it was somebody else's band, uh, a guy named Buddy Norris. Uh, then my band was the Source. Uh, right after that, I see. But you were but you you did you sang lead in that dude's band in the Shadows, right? Or, yes. Yeah. Okay. But, and then and then sang lead and played and started playing guitar. In the Source. In, in the Source. And I think you said the Source. You once said the Source was the good band. That was the one that won all the. Well, the, all the band battles, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, we did. You weren't doing originals at that point. No, right? no. You, but, you know, you, um, it pretty much stuff on the radio, but, but we started to do, uh, like songs from the Who's first album. And, uh, you know, FM radio had started right around then. You know, this is like 67 ish. Yeah. Right? So we must have, it must have been on because we, where else would we have heard this stuff, right? Um, you'd play, um, Sometimes it would be like a temptation sing or something on the radio, uh, but um, we were playing. Uh, I know we were playing uh, the Who. We were playing Young Bloods. Uh, that's why I'm so thrilled. I have Banana in my band now. Uh, uh, Buffalo Springfield, you know, um, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, that wasn't necessarily um, you know hits, but but we're on the uh, we're, would would have been on the FM uh, station, you know. Um, and and you, you formed your identity kind of by who you liked, you know. Uh, I remember Bruce's band always doing, you know, more Doors and uh, uh, early Van Morrison. He was doing uh, Love, you know, mm. you know, a little bit more esoteric. You know, he, he was always a little bit more conscious of the poetry side of things, you know. Where I wasn't, I was more like the Who, like you know, bash, bash your head in, and you know, <laughs> smash your guitar on your, on your face, you know. Uh, but you know, each group had each individual band out of the garage, and there was only a dozen of us that got out of the garage. Everybody else stayed in, you know. Everybody, everybody had a band, but only about a dozen actually got out of the garage. And you had your identity, you know. Your this was the, you know, this was more Who, or you know. Like uh, the the the, um, the click uh, had, a, had you know could do Beatles stuff you know that was you know really high in the evolutionary scale of local bands and the mods were like the Stones you know the motifs were like the animals you know so you you know you kind of had your amanuensis a doppelganger uh, <laughs> uh, you know mentor whatever the hell it is you know, <laughs> you, know you had your <laughs> your shadow group or you know your uh, Andy you talked to Gary and Gary was under the impression that Steve could have joined the band earlier is that yeah I was talking to Gary recently and he said that he felt that you could have joined the band back in 73 but that didn't quite happen he, he called me we had been in Virginia and I went in and 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 I think I was trying to put a bottleneck guitar on for you. 
And the manager, uh, Mike Capel, was like, eh, it's too busy, it's too, uh, we don't need this. You know, we don't need this guy. We don't need another guy in the band. It's not as expensive enough as it is. Well, <laughs> so, right, and the story always goes, yeah, your one contribution to the first album, this is possibly a myth, is on the song Lost in the Flood. Is that true? It's true. I punched the uh, amp, and, uh, and in those days, it had a built-in reverb. <laughs> and I that it like made like a... I don't know, sound of thunder or something. <laughs> it was a cheap, a cheap effect, a did cheap you, special. Did effect. you get paid for that? <laughs> you know what? Let me look into that. Is there a lawsuit here? So you're listening to uh, Rolling Stone music now, and we're talking with the great Steve Van Zandt, and we'll be right back with much more. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I wanted to talk about a, a song called I'm Coming Back that's on your new album. was also on the, the early 90s uh, Southside Johnny sort of comeback album that you did from Better Days. I know you said it's one of your favorite lyrics of all time. It's also, honestly, one of my favorite songs of all time by anyone. I really love that song. Can you tell a little bit about just putting that song together in the first place, writing it, what you remember, where, what you were drawing on? It was a bit of pressure because you know we hadn't we hadn't done a record since Hearts of Stone, which was like '78. So this was like um, whatever, 15 years later. And Hearts of Stone had sort of grown in its, uh, you know, everybody, you know, it started ending up on favorite album lists and. and grown in stature through the years for whatever reason yeah it was in the Rolling Stones top 100 albums of the 70s it was in there you yeah know? there you go you know so so you know I felt like um, you know this has got to be as good or, or better you know I've never done anything in my life I didn't feel was as good or better than the previous thing I did in my life mm. you know and so I didn't want you know <laughs> that sounds like a good way to drive yourself crazy Steve well, to, to <laughs> you know it, 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 it helps uh, keeps the it keeps the standards at a certain level that you know you gotta be careful about you know cause I you know you see a lot of sequels that you know don't measure up to the original film mm. which I don't understand you know, all the hard work has been done, right? The sequel <laughs> should always be easy. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, you know, I just sat down to write, like, the ultimate sort of comeback song, you know? Mm. I'm going to, you know, I, I got I to gotta kill with this thing, you know? It's got to be, like, the opening song on the album, you know? It's going to be just... Uh, and you actually have a little bit more pressure when you're writing for somebody else, you know, than you do for yourself even, because... Uh, you know, they're depending on you, and they have faith in you, and you don't want to let that faith down. And you know, I was quite proud of those three Southside records. I still remember, baby, all those wild, desperate times, making love in crazy places while the town around us died. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm telling you, it's one of my, it's one of my better. You know, there's a certain nostalgia for what sounds like sort of that amazing life you guys had on the streets of Asbury Park. Or am I am I misinterpreting what's going on? Well, there? on that on, yeah, on that, that right. album, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that and yeah. of course, uh, it's been a long time. Yeah, you know, was 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 literally uh, right. about the three <laughs> yeah. of us. You know, because I knew it was going to be the first time me, Bruce, and Johnny were on a record, uh, maybe ever. 
certainly with certainly sharing leads like that yeah I mean, there's probably songs where yeah yeah i don't i don't think we ever uh, did that so it was like you know it was written specifically for that purpose and and uh yeah it was it was it was three guys looking back on their lives and uh raise a glass for the comrades we've lost which is getting you know more and more as you grow older yeah. you know you start to become quite conscious of your mortality and so yeah that was about that yeah i mean i think those two songs uh i'm not sure i have to go through the rest of the album but you, you might be right it might be it might be running a theme th- throughout you know uh maybe is your relationship to jersey more ambivalent than than say bruce's you haven't lived there since like the 70s i think yeah, Bruce has much more conscious. He's much more conscious about uh, history and, and details, and 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 you know the cause and effect of you know things. You know what I mean? He's much. Uh, he's just, uh, you know, he thinks more than I do. You know about these things, and and I, I really don't. You know, you know, I um, I I never I never felt uh, in any way negative. You know, any kind of negative feeling about it. Um, but you do. Um, you know, I I think I think I I fit. You know, my my particular lifestyle is more urban. You know, I just I'm just more of an urban guy. You know, uh, and uh, I never was really a house guy. You know, mm. you know, you know. For some, I don't know. Early on, I, I don't know why I grew up in a house. You know, so you would think that would be totally <laughs> normal, right? You know, suburban, nice suburban house. But um, very early on, I, I, I was attracted to the city and, and, uh, and everything about it, you know, the whole urban thing. And, you know, now I just, I can't sleep unless I hear, you know, garbage cans and gunshots. You know? <laughs> so, you know, houses make me very nervous. <laughs> I know Charlie Manson's, you know, knocking on the door any moment. You know, uh, you know it, it, it's just, I don't know. I, I, so it's not really a conscious thing, but but um, I, am, I am maybe a little bit more attracted to the city. You do a bunch of other stuff that's sort of less... Jersey Shore sound on the on the new record. You do a cover of the blues is my business, which you seem to really enjoy doing live. When I saw you in, in Asbury, yeah, the, you know the nice thing about this album, unlike any other record I've ever done, was what, it really served as an introduction uh, of myself. Not, not only a reintroduction of myself, but an, an actual introduction. Um, because by the time you know you get into a studio, um, you know you've developed to a certain point where where you know you really are yourself at that point you you have to have some self-identity in order to be you know have a record deal and get in the studio at least in those days <laughs> now who, who knows so you know you went through all these phases in the 60s uh, we were surprisingly a monoculture i keep popping on this mic sorry uh we were surprisingly uh, a monoculture uh, considering we're in United States of America, which of course we know has no culture uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, has no, nothing in common with any of anybody. But in those days, be, be, maybe because um, the radio was extremely uh, similar town to town, and, and then when the FM started, there was really only that one FM station in every town. So we kind of had that mass shared experience constantly, you know, and. You go through phases, you know, 64 British Invasion, 65 was folk rock, 66 was country rock, 67 psychedelic, 68 blues, 69 uh, southern, uh, you know, rock, you know, the band, the Delaney and Bonnie, and, you know. So you would go through all those phases, 
And you take from this and take from that as you're forming your identity. And then some people would stay. You know, they get to right. psychedelic, they stay there. You know, or <laughs> <laughs> one too many trips, and you, you know, or you know, you go to blues and you and you stay there. Well, for us, we just went through these phases until we formed our own identity. And so, you know, by the time you get in the studio, you're not you're not, not going to play blues very often. We, we had a little touch of it. You know, we we did a little by little by Junior Wells with, with Southside. I think on the very first Southside album. You know, we we touch on it now and then, but not really. So, this 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 record was really a nice opportunity to sort of say, okay, this is who I am. You know, I do I'm gonna do a little, I'm gonna do some blues. I'm gonna do a little doo wop. I'm gonna do a little, you know, Ennio Morricone. You know, I'm gonna do a little black exploitation. You know, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do all these weird, you know, genres and subgenres here that actually make up who I am, which I never had done before. Yeah, li- literally, by expectation, you do down and out in New York City, which is uh, which you were rehearsing the hell out of to really nail. I think <laughs> you know, it, it, it's fun. It's it's fun to do that. You know, so I've actually been able to open up. You know, and I also I also think the the the, the political environment actually was is quite liberating for me because uh, when I started, you know, there was nobody talking about politics really at all. You know, and Ronald Reagan was. God and that was that, you know. You know, and well, of course we had a few of us out there demonstrating, or you know, our friends you know, always, you know, Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt and John Hall and Graham Nash were always, you know, trying to bring attention to something important. But but we weren't putting it into our work very often, you know. There'd be a, a rare exception like Ohio, which is the ultimate exception. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, but but. Uh, for the most part, you know, politics was, was separate from our work, you know. And so uh, I felt, you know, this is going to be my thing, and I, and I put it in the work. And um, part of it was to just bring attention to certain issues, but also my, my, my intention was to politicize all my friends <laughs> and politicize the industry, make it normal, make it normal to, to have talk about issues and, you know, and, and, and uh, occasionally put it, put it in a song. You know, and, uh, and and so through the years, that's what's happened. You know, it's it, it's kind of become quite normal to be politically engaged. And now, of course, uh, we, we've gone from no discussion about politics to nothing but. You know, I mean, it's just mm. every, everywhere you go. You know, I mean, you know, so I I, I feel, you know. I can make a non-political album now with no guilt whatsoever because it's just—it's <laughs> constantly, it. you know, in your face, you know. So you, it's nice. You mentioned psychedelia, and when I interviewed David Chase a few years ago, he actually said that his LSD trips—and I think he took like twelve or something—were like a tremendous influence on him, which is really interesting. And you kind of see it in The Sopranos, you, see, you know, in, in, in Tony's dream sequences and all that stuff. <laughs> Were your own dabblings in that area, which I guess was a, a brief period for you? Was that a, was that a big deal for you? Did it, did it have an influence on your creativity or your approach to life or art? It was very brief. I only I had a couple of trips. It was so intense for me. Mm. And um, even, uh, even you know, grass and, and uh, you know, hash, hashish and uh, the... Uh, the more uh, whatever benign, you know, the more the, the, uh, the more <laughs> simpler forms of it, uh, you know, would would, would I, I would just completely go into another world uh, with just a couple of hits of of, of, of smoke, you know. Um, and then I lost a friend, you know, uh, on an acid trip. Uh, oh, sure. One of my friends never went and never came back. You know, mm. he, he turned into a you know five year old, you know, Jesus. you know, and uh, yeah. 
So it got a little scary, and, but, but um, it only took one trip, really, for me to completely uh, understand Eastern philosophy, you know? Huh. And, 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 and this was something I know people find hard to believe, but we weren't doing drugs to escape. I don't know anybody who did drugs to escape. I mean, we weren't, we weren't doing the hard drugs back then. Heroin was not cool. Speed was not cool. And you knew very few people who did those things, you know. Um, heroin was, was sort of just something that was uh, done by, you know, an element that you did not relate to, you know. I was so surprised when that became popular in, in the rock world, you know. It was really shocking. Mm. We, didn't, we didn't know John Lennon and Eric Clapton. I mean, we didn't know people were, you know, were into it back then. But anyway, it had more of an effect on me in terms of my spiritual, religious philosophy than anything else. You know, the, the entire concept of Eastern philosophy of everything is alive, Mm. And everything is connected. Mm. And for every action, there is a reaction. Those things like I call the scientific elements of religion were made very obvious by LSD. You know, all of a sudden, the table is alive. Okay, you see the molecules. Okay, you, you see the <laughs> electrons moving. Okay, you know, and everything is obviously connected. You know, you know. so, you know, you get... The short route, you know, you know, thirty years of studying Eastern philosophy, you get in five minutes. You know, it was <laughs> it was good for that. You know, um, and that's all I needed. You know, to really, really solidify my philosophy of life in that sense. But artistically, not so much. Um, I think that's really an overrated thing. Uh, you, you know, it loosens up. It, it gives you some ideas in some in some in some ways. Um, you know. But you have to already be good at it. This is mm. the important thing to, to, to note for you youngsters out there, okay? <laughs> you don't take drugs and then become a good songwriter, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be a good songwriter, then take drugs, <laughs> and then you might get an idea or two, you know, that might, you know, but it's got to be in that order, okay? You know. I'm just curious briefly here about your acting career. Because before David Chase, before he called you up, did you even think about acting or being on TV or in the movie? Not for one minute. Um, I like I liked that whole medium. You know, I, I like I like that world, and I thought about writing something maybe, and maybe even getting into somehow directing it. But mm. um, no. And your first reaction to the phone call and the offer for the show? I said, geez, that's really nice. You want me to be in a new TV show? But no thanks. <laughs> uh, I'm not an actor, you know? And what happened to and, convince you? You know, he said, yes, you are. <laughs> you just don't know it yet. You know? I hadn't really, uh, you know, recognized the fact that we're all acting all the time, actually. Right. You know? I, I now understand that yeah. much better. But, but you know... And he just, and it just it just happened to be at the right time, you know what I mean? It was mid nineties. I I um had been you know pretty much blackballed from the music industry because <laughs> of my success with Sun City. Uh, I was really scaring people at that point, and I and I was scary. To be fair, I, I was a scary guy back yeah. then. You know, uh, I was really quite. Uh, you know, intense about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. It was life and death to me. So you know, I became a little bit too scary, and, and uh, anyway, so so I had nothing else to do, you know, to be huh. honest, you know. And, and I walk to my dog, and he says, you know, be an actor. Okay, I'll try that, you know. And then the band reformed like a few months later, right? And I, I had started the radio show, right? Uh, you know, I, I I discovered this whole garage thing, 
which was a thing, and, and you know, it turns out to be just basically traditional rock and roll. But but it was a thing back then, and uh, so I did. Yeah, I went from having no work to having three jobs at once. <laughs> and so, how did you balance the street band tour and the Sopranos at the same exact time? I never. You know, it was very lucky. We we toured the entire time. That I all seven years of Sopranos and three years of Lilyhammer, and I only missed one month of one tour and one month of another tour. You know, pretty lucky. Yeah. When you think about it, you know, um, I had a little more control with Lilyhammer. You know, being the star and producer and co-writer and, 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 and you know, but um, David Chase was just a big fan and then scheduled my scenes on days off, and every single day off of the tour, I flew I flew home. If we were in L.A., if we were in Paris, you know, wherever we were. You know, and it limited my role in Sopranos a little bit, you know, which I, is unfortunate. Because I think if I if I hadn't been touring, I would have been really getting involved. You know, with, I, would, I would have gotten involved with writing, I think, and maybe even directing, you know, by the end. Because I, I, I would soon do that with Lilyhammer, you know. Immediately do it with Lilyhammer, uh, the writing part, and then... I would direct the final episode of Lilyhammer, but um, it was, I was very lucky, you know, doing both at the same time. And I think I brought both audiences together because it was two different audiences at first. Yeah. Even though it was both New Jersey, it was you know the Sopranos audience was was quite a bit younger. Yeah. How much did the darkness of Silvio linger with you psychologically or spiritually? I mean, you had to. I mean, it's, it's acting, but you had to go to some no I think you're I think acting is I mean I, I had a I had to come up with my own theory of acting and, and that and that was my theory that every single characteristic of, of human kind lives in all of us and acting is finding that role uh, you know finding that character inside and, and then inhabiting it and bring it to life and it turns out that's exactly the same job as, as, a, as a singer of a song by the way mm. you know you're doing exactly the same thing you know, you're you're inhabiting that role. The, the song is a script, and you are now becoming that character. And and you know, either you're believable or you're not. I had to do that, and and um, you know, in 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 this case, he wasn't that bad a guy. You know, I mean, com- comparatively, you know. Well, I, I mean, don't know what uh, Adriana would say about that, but yeah, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah, he, had, he had his moments, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, but he was following a certain code. You know, <laughs> he was a traditionalist. You know, <laughs> so we had that in common. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was an, that. You know. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't that difficult to uh, to keep it to, in perspective. I, I think what happens if you're young, you know, you start acting when you're young. I, that's got to screw you up, man. You know, it just does because you don't know who you are, you know. And now you're becoming all these other people. <laughs> you know, how do you ever find your way back to yourself? I I, I would think that'd be a challenge, you know. But for me, I really, really knew who I was by the time I started acting. You know. So you've been listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We've been very fortunate to have the great Steve Van with us. Thanks so much, Steve. Can I say one thing? Oh, yeah. Um, the Rolling Stone article was, was wonderful and, you know, really cool. And I'm, and I'm, I'm honored to, to, to be, you know, get that attention. I just want to say one thing that, that, that's in the air, you know. There's, there's sort of an implication, maybe it came from the book or... That somehow John Landau, my relationship with John Landau had something to do with me leaving the band, you know. And I just want to, I just want to just say very clearly that 
I never have suggested that or implied that or you know and and, and in fact it's not really it's not really true we've, you know we've so. we've nailed that for the record thanks Steve <laughs> tune in next week at 1 p.m. on Sirius XM's volume or download us as a podcast at rollingstone.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.